So I want you to picture a massive river, maybe a kilometer or two wide, flowing, flowing downstream toward this sharp cliff, thousand meters down of a waterfall. This river flowing to this sharp drop-off, a thousand-meter waterfall, and you are sitting in the middle of this river, each one of you, in your own little boat. There you sit. Now, this is the position that each of us are in in this world. That massive river is the world's lies that they feed us, the world's wrong thinking, what the world is telling us is reality and what is true. That's, that's what's flowing in the river. So the world is telling us wrongly that everyone's going to a better place. Everyone's fine. We just need to follow our hearts. It's all good. Don't have any negative thoughts. Just focus on the positive. Especially avoid any kind of guilt feelings. That's not appropriate. It's not psychologically healthy. It's all fine. It's all good. Just go with the flow. That's what the world is wrongly telling us. And there we are in our little boats. And if we are passive, then we will just continue to flow along with those wrong thoughts all the way to going over the falls to eternal destruction. That's the position that each of us is in right now, this afternoon. But the good news is that God hasn't left us in that place. God has given us the Bible. The Bible is like an, an outboard engine, which you can fasten onto your little boat. Anybody have an outboard motor? You fasten onto your little boat. And when you open up the Bible, and study God's Word, and pray over the Scriptures, and hear God's Word taught here Saturday afternoons, and study the Scripture in your home groups. When we open up the Scriptures and think over what the Scriptures are teaching us, it's like, and the boat kind of turned around, and we're heading upstream, up towards joy in God forever, salvation. And that's what I'm praying will happen in each of our hearts this afternoon. As we open up and study Romans 3, 21 through 26, God will start that outboard engine, and we will see more clearly. We will get out of the flow of the direction the world is pulling us in and get on the road towards going upstream towards heaven and then bringing as many others with us as we possibly can. Let's look at Revelation, Romans, excuse me, not Revelation, Romans. Revelation is good too. But tonight, Romans 3, 21 through 26, start with verse 21. And notice especially those first two words. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now pause there. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a powerful preacher in the UK. 
He's with the Lord now, but he was a powerful pastor, preacher. His sermons are still being published today. And when he preached a sermon on this passage, this verse in particular, he said that those two words, but now, are the most important words in the Bible. Because when you say, but now, you're making it clear that something has been going on in the past, but now something new is happening. Something has been taking place previously, but now something different is taking place. And what that different thing is, what that new thing is, that's the most important message of the Scriptures. And that's what we're going to see this afternoon. So to understand what Paul is saying, we need to be clear on what was happening before. Let's start there. What was happening before? And we have already seen that in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. What we've seen in those verses these last weeks is that we have all sinned against God. Every single human being has sinned against God, rebelled against God. And this is shocking because we've all seen, we saw this in Romans chapter 1, Paul says every human being has seen clearly God's reality, God's power, God's goodness. I mean, in the simple fact that here you are, he gave you life. You had nothing to do with that. He gave you life, and he's given you an amazingly complex and incredible body. Look at these bodies that we have and all that they can do. And he's placed us here in this beautiful planet Earth. And so God has displayed his reality and his goodness and his power clearly, and we have all turned our backs on him, him who is our greatest joy. We've all turned our backs on him. We've rebelled against him. We've tried to create our own little joy sources and have been left with puny little inferior joys in comparison. We've rebelled against God. We've chosen the path of sin, and we've become enslaved to sin as a result. That's what's been going on before. And God responded to that by revealing his wrath against sin. We also saw that back in Romans chapter 1. Revealing his wrath, his anger against sin. Now, he didn't do that by bringing the final judgment. That's still to come. But he's revealed his wrath, and today he is revealing his wrath by allowing sin to increase more and more throughout the world and to become worse and worse. So as you see sin increasing, becoming worse, greed, racism, oppression, sexual immoralities, you see sin getting worse and worse and spreading more and more. That is God revealing his wrath against sin. So we're left seeing that we are slaves of sin and that God is revealing his wrath against sin which means we are in a hopeless situation left to ourselves. I mean, think about that. We're slaves to sin. We don't want to obey God. 
We can't obey God because we don't want to obey God. We are slaves of sin, and God is revealing his wrath against sin, which means that what we're facing is God's wrath. That's what we are facing because we cannot do anything to save ourselves. I was thinking about my early teenage years as I was pondering this passage. And I think I probably would have looked like a pretty good kid on the outside. But inside, my heart was full of sin. Full of sin. Pride, jealousy, lust, greed, boastfulness. I mean, I could, you know, try to look good on the outside. I I went to church. I had to go to church. Thank the Lord for my faithful parents. I went to church, but I could not change my heart. I was a slave to sin. And we all were. We were all guilty before God, and we could not change ourselves. And Paul sums that up in verses 20 and 21 from chapter 3, which Joe preached so well two weeks ago. Let me read those verses, because that's the conclusion of what has been going on before. Chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law, God's law, says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, by us trying to obey to make up for our sin, by, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That last verse is saying that we can't make up for our sin by trying to obey God's law because we're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We can't obey God. We don't want to obey God. And so we can't make up for our sin by trying to obey God. So all that the law does when it comes towards slaves of sin is just to Give a more clear picture of, the, of their sin, more clear knowledge of their sin. That's all that the law does is just expose our sin all the more. So God's law condemns every single one of us, has condemned every one of us as sinners, facing God's wrath. Stops our mouths. There's no excuse that can get us off the hook. We've all known who the true God is. We've all turned our backs on on him. We're condemned by God's law. We are facing God's wrath, and there is nothing we in ourselves can do about it. That's what's been happening before. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. That's the bad news. Now, let me just ask you, have you felt the bad news as bad news? Have you come to the place in your life where you've realized that there is a God who's created everything who I am accountable to, and I have rebelled against him, and I face his wrath, and there is nothing I can do in myself to save myself? Have you seen that? Have you felt that? So important that we do. Don't don't gloss over this. Yes, this is a negative thought. But listen, friends, it's reality. If the reality is negative and points you in a helpful direction, 
embrace the negativity so that you can move in the right direction. So have, have you felt your hopelessness before a holy and righteous God in light of your slavery to sin? Have you felt that? Without feeling that, we're not going to understand salvation and the beautiful work God has done. So that's what was happening before. Then Paul says, but now, but now, God has done something beautiful, amazing. So what has God done? What has God done now? To answer that, let's read verse 21 through the beginning of verse 22. Again, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What God has done now is manifest his righteousness. That's what he's done. Now, the righteousness of God can mean different things in the Bible, and you'll know the difference because you look at the context. Sometimes it means God's judging righteousness by which he punishes sinners. That's reality, but that's not the way it's used here. Here it's talking about God's saving righteousness. God's saving righteousness, which mercifully changes our hearts, gives us faith, forgives all our sins, all of our sins forgiven, fills us with God's love, knowing his presence, and by means of that, freeing us from slavery to sin. So what God has done now is manifested his saving righteousness. And Paul says that God does this apart from the law. This is huge, those three words, apart from the law, four words. This is huge because of what it means is he doesn't wait for us to start obeying the law before he manifests his saving righteousness to us. He'd be waiting forever because we're enslaved to sin. He doesn't wait for us to start obeying the law. He doesn't, it, it's, it's while we were still sinners that he manifested his saving righteousness to us. That's what Paul is saying in verse 21. Read it again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He's not waiting for us to start obeying. And then notice what Paul says next. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets is another way of describing the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. And the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi promised that one day God would manifest his saving righteousness by sending the Messiah. The Messiah. The Messiah who would crush Satan's power, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 who would bring salvation to every nation, tongue, and tribe. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Who would be fully God, 
early chapters in the book of Isaiah, and yet born as a baby in Bethlehem, Isaiah 9, Micah chapter 5. So fully God and fully man, the Messiah, Jesus, and that the Messiah would be punished, punished, paying for the sins of everyone who puts their trust in him. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. God manifests his saving righteousness in Jesus. That's what he did. He manifested his saving righteousness in Jesus' humble birth, in Jesus' life-giving and heart-changing teaching, in Jesus' healing and miracles, his sacrificial death on the cross, display of God's saving righteousness, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, showing that his death did pay for the sins of all who trust him, Jesus ascending to be at the right hand of God the Father, where he is right now, and then Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit, who changes our hearts, gives us faith, fills us with God's love, assures us of being forgiven for sins. In Jesus, God has manifested his saving righteousness. Think about Zacchaeus. I was reading about Zacchaeus earlier this week. Luke chapter 19. Powerful story. Zacchaeus had been a dishonest and greedy tax collector who had turned his back on God, who was enslaved to sin, stealing from people, breaking God's law, facing God's wrath forever. That was Zacchaeus. But then he met Jesus. Jesus' love, Jesus' words, Jesus' power changed Zacchaeus' heart. So he trusted Jesus to save him. He was completely forgiven for all of his sins. He was so filled with joy in God's presence that he sold half of everything that he had to care for the poor. God manifested his saving righteousness through Jesus and brought that saving righteousness upon Zacchaeus. And that's what God is still doing today. That's what God can do this afternoon. So how do we get in on God's saving righteousness? I like the sound of that. How do I get in on that? Paul tells us in verse 22, Start reading in verse 21 just to get the flow of thought. So verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how we get in on the saving righteousness of God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who trusts Jesus Christ receives God's saving righteousness. So don't miss how important this is. This is very different than what man-made religions teach. We don't earn God's saving righteousness by obeying the law, by trying to be good, 
We don't earn God's saving righteousness by trying to be good, by going to church or by getting baptized or by working hard at your job. Or We don't earn God's saving righteousness by keeping God's law. We receive God's saving righteousness by trusting Jesus. This is so important. We don't earn God's saving righteousness by obeying the law. We receive God's saving righteousness by faith, by trusting Jesus. So when we turn from our sin, put our trust in Jesus, trusting him to change our hearts, trusting him to forgive our sins, trusting him to fill us with God's love, to start to free us from sin's power, he will do all of those things when we turn from our sin and just trust Jesus. That's how we get in on this revelation of God's saving righteousness. It's by faith. Now, why is it by faith? Paul wants to make that very clear to us. He gives a couple of verses to helping us see why it has to be by faith, why that's the only way it could possibly happen. So why is God's saving righteousness only received through faith? The answer, start at the end of verse 22, and then go down to the beginning of verse 25. End of verse 22, here's why. For, because, there is no distinction between people. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the reason it has to be by faith is because we've all sinned. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why it has to be by faith. Remember, we've all been enslaved to sin. We didn't want to obey God. We wanted to rebel against God. That's why we couldn't obey God. We've all been enslaved to sin, which means we can't do anything to overcome our slavery to sin and make up for our sin before God. There's nothing we can do because we're slaves of sin. So how can we be saved? By trusting what Jesus does. Not by what we do, by trusting what Jesus does. Think about it like this. Imagine that you have been in, we hope this wouldn't happen, okay? But imagine that you've been in a terrible car accident. And you are in the ambulance, you've got broken bones, you've got internal injuries, you're bleeding profusely. They are rushing you to the emergency department. They roll you in the gurney, uh, on the gurney into the emergency department, and there you are dying. So at that moment, what can you do to save yourself? Nothing. In fact, if you try, it's going to get worse. So okay, you can't do anything at that point. You are dying. So what should you do? Trust the doctors, right? You just trust the doctor. They can help you. That's why they're there. Trust the doctor. If you try to do something, you'll make matters worse. And that's a perfect picture of how we can be saved. By placing our faith in what the doctor will do the great physician, 
what God promises to do through Jesus. We trust. We don't earn God's saving righteousness by trying to obey. We receive God's saving righteousness by trusting what God will do through Jesus. And in this passage, Paul mentions three crucial theological doctrinal terms to help us understand what God promises to do through Jesus. So let's take a look at these three crucial words. First, we are justified. Jesus, which means Jesus' perfect sinlessness is given to us as a gift. We're justified. That's at the beginning of verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. So what this means is the moment you put your trust in Jesus, I'm going to turn from whatever else I was trusting. I'm trusting you, Jesus Christ. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, all of your sins are put upon Jesus and punished on the cross. All of them. All the punishment that you had coming to you poured out upon him and his perfect sinlessness, his perfect righteousness is given to you as a gift. You don't become perfectly sinless, but you're covered. God covers you, clothes you with Jesus' perfect righteousness. So when God the Father looks at you, he sees you as perfectly righteous. That's justification. That's what God promises to do through Jesus. That's the first word. We are justified. Secondly, we receive redemption. Jesus pays the price to free us. That's the next part of verse 24. Through the redemption, learn that word, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption has to do with a payment that frees a slave from slavery. You pay redemption, a slave gets freed. We've all been slaves of sin. But the moment we put our trust in Jesus, he pays the price to free us. He's punished in our place on the cross, paying the debt we owe, paying the price to free us. And so from that moment, immediately we start to be freed from our slavery to sin. Redemption. Jesus pays the price to free us. And then third word, propitiation. Word we don't use very often. Jesus becomes our propitiation, which means satisfying God's wrath by dying on the cross. Propitiation. Learn that word. I know we don't use it very often, but oh, it's so, so important. See, the picture is that our sin has stirred up God's holy and righteous wrath. Our sin has stirred up his holy, righteous, pure wrath. God's wrath isn't a temper tantrum. It is holy and righteous wrath. And because it's a perfect and holy and righteous wrath, he can't just forget about it or ignore it. It has to be satisfied. It has to be propitiated. How? One way is if he just poured his wrath out upon you for your sin or me for my sin. That would satisfy his wrath, yes. But then we wouldn't be saved, right? And so 
in great mercy, really heartbreaking love, God made another way. He, Jesus agreed, Jesus would come and God would pour his wrath for my sin, for the sin of everybody who trusts him. He'll, he pours our wrath out upon his son. That satisfies God's wrath and saves us. So there we are in the emergency department. Go back to that picture. Dying from the wounds we've received in this terrible car accident, and there is nothing that we can do ourselves to save us. We are facing God's wrath. It is inevitable. We in ourselves can do nothing. But God, through Jesus, can and will as we trust him. And so as we, we trust Jesus to justify us, and he covers us with Jesus' perfect, sinless righteousness. We trust God in Jesus to pay our redemption, and he pays the price to free us. That's what he did on the cross. We trust him to be our propitiation, to satisfy God's wrath by dying on the cross. And all of that, all of that, justification, redemption, propitiation, all of that happens by faith alone. Not by you trying to be good enough, but by you trusting. By you saying, I can't do anything. I am hopeless apart from a Savior. I'm going to trust you, Jesus Christ, to save me. And whenever any human being trusts Jesus Christ to save them, he saves them. That's what he does. And God's saving righteousness is manifested in that case. But now, Paul is not finished yet. He knows that what he's talking about here is the foundation of our Christian lives. This is the crucial foundation. And so it's vital that your foundation be rock solid with no cracks, no questions, no, well, what about that it's rock solid, firm, stable. And so he's thinking of every possible question we might have. And so he asks one more question. The question is, how can a perfectly just God forgive sin? That may be a question some of you have, or it may be a question you will have. Paul anticipates that question, and he answers it next in this passage. Verses 25 and 26, he answers that. How can a perfectly just God forgive sin? Verses 25 and 26. Paul says, whom, he's talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So, so God put Jesus forward on the cross, showing that he's the propitiation for our sins by his blood to be received by faith. This putting forth of Jesus on the cross was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, what's going on here? Well, Paul's helping us understand a potential problem. End of verse 25, 
The problem is that God has passed over former sins. He's forgiven former sins. Think about Abraham. Remember when Abraham was going to Pharaoh with his wife, Sarah, and Sarah was beautiful, and he was afraid that Pharaoh was going to kill him and take his wife. So he says, tell Pharaoh you're my sister. She's my sister. That's a blatant, horrible lie, completely not trusting how God had promised, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to protect you. And God forgave Abraham that lie. Or Jacob, when Jacob lies to his father and steals his brother's birthright. Remember that? This blatant deception. God forgave Jacob. David, think about David, tragically, committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Bathsheba's husband and forgiven. And there's thousands and thousands of other examples of that through the Old Testament time period where God forgave people for their sins. These were horrifying sins. And yet God passed over them. God forgave them. So the question is, how can a perfectly just God do that? How can a perfectly just God forgive sin? Think about it like this. Imagine a a courtroom and a judge, and he's hearing evidence against a man accusing him of having committed a horrifyingly terrible crime. And it's evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence, and there's no evidence to the contrary, and it's clear to the judge, it's clear to everyone, guilty. He's guilty of this unspeakably horrible crime. But imagine that the judge then says to the man, I am declaring you forgiven. You are not guilty. You can go. Now, I think all of us at that point would say, that's wrong. That is not just. You can't do that and be just. And that's the question raised by what God has done in forgiving Abraham and forgiving Jacob and forgiving David. And the list goes on and on. Forgiving you, forgiving me. That's the question. How can a perfectly just God forgive sin? Verse 25 tells us that God answers this question by putting Jesus forward as the propitiation, the punishment through his blood. God had publicly displayed Jesus. 2,000 years ago on the cross, God was publicly displaying Jesus, being punished for Abraham's sin, being punished for Jacob's sin, being punished for David's sin. See, it's not that when God forgives Abraham, Jacob, David, or you, it's not that when God forgives you, your sin goes unpunished. It's that when God forgives you, it's because he's punished your sins on the cross in Jesus. And look at the cross. Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. Your sins are being punished there if you're trusting him. 
Your sins are being punished in Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your sins are being punished there. When God forgives your sins, it's not that your sins are unpunished. He has punished them in his son, Jesus. Do you feel the love, the mercy, the beauty, the justice of that? God is perfect justice. Every sin that has ever been committed and that ever will be committed will be justly punished either by Jesus being punished on the cross or by the sinner being punished in hell. But every sin will be justly punished. That's why God can be perfectly just while forgiving Abraham's sin and Jacob's sin and David's sin and your sin. Perfectly just. And we just fall down on our faces before the cross and we worship. Blazing justice shining forth from the cross and heartbreaking love and compassion shining forth from the cross and we We trust and we worship. We say, thank you. But now, God has manifested his saving righteousness to be received by faith. So, two takeaways, two encouragements to close with. What does this mean for us? Two encouragements. First, I would guess that some of you have not been forgiven for your sin. And you are still guilty before God. You've not bent the knee and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And understand that this is binary. It's, it's, it's not that, you know, well, you're, you're, you're sort of forgiven or you're, you know, maybe you're a little bit forgiven. It, it, It's you either are or you are not. That's how it is. It's all or nothing. And it all comes by faith. And so my encouragement to you, if if you have not yet received God's saving righteousness, my encouragement to you is receive it. Receive God's saving righteousness by trusting Jesus. You are there on the gurney In the emergency department, you are dying. And look at God and what he promises to do through Jesus. And trust Jesus Christ. And you will find that your heart is changed. You will find that you are experiencing God's presence and his love and his joy so much that your slavery to sin will start to to fade away. You'll be assured of forgiveness. You will know that you're completely forgiven by God. God is now your father. You've received God's saving righteousness. That's my plea to you. Receive God's saving righteousness by trusting Jesus Christ. That's my first encouragement. Second encouragement, fight discouragement by saying, but now. What do I mean by that? When you're feeling overwhelmed by guilt, 
or discouraged by your sinfulness or just feeling unspiritual or far from God, right? We all, we all struggle with those kind of discouragements, right? We all do. I do. You do. We all struggle with that from time to time. So when you're discouraged, fight back by saying, but now God has manifested his saving righteousness to be received by faith. But now, the cross has happened. But now, I have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But now, I'm trusting Jesus Christ, even with just weak faith, like just a little mustard seed of faith. I'm trusting, but that's all it takes is the mustard seed moves mountains. So I trust, I believe, help my unbelief, and I'm assured, I'm forgiven. He's helping me. He loves me. I'm in his family. God is my father. My feet are on the rock of the word of God. I'm clothed with his perfect righteousness. The redemption price has been paid. I'm no longer a slave. God's wrath against me has been satisfied. Everything has changed. But now everything has been changed. So trust Jesus. So when you get discouraged, don't stay there. Trust Jesus. But now, and I'm going to trust Jesus. That's my encouragement to you. Let's stand. I want to pray for us. Oh Lord, what a salvation you've purchased for us through your son, Jesus. What love and mercy displayed on the cross. What justice displayed on the cross. What a glorious God you are. Lord, help us all now to turn and trust Jesus Christ for the first time, afresh. Help us all fix our hearts upon Jesus Christ and trust. Thank you that your saving righteousness has been manifested and is received by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.